And take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 25. As we continue the Olivet Discourse. Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. The wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. The wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. While they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Father, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word, not just its reading. Thank you that you are so good. For Christ's sake, amen. Um. I assume you're probably all familiar with the game. It's one of those games that it's really fun watching your own kids play, particularly when they're small, um, because of kind of how their brains operate and and what they kind of think meets the win condition. I absolutely love it, right? You get the the kids together and they decide, hey, we're going to play hide and seek, and I, I love watching that, right? Particularly when they're little and one person turns around and starts counting or whatever, and all the kids go off and you know, go hide somewhere. It's my favorite when it's played inside, and there's no really good hiding places because particularly when they're little, you know, the person ends up counting and some child, you know, is adorably left standing in the middle of the room, and they're like, ah, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And, you know, they just kind of like lay down on the table, and you're like, I can literally see you from here. I'm not even having to look. I don't have to move. I love watching that moment of just the little ones particularly where you can tell like their internal clock is like saying, I I should panic, I should panic, but their brains aren't yet developed enough to find a good solution. So it's like, well, I'll just stand here and maybe they won't notice and it never works. But I love also how you can kind of see just that that one little phrase is like so panic inducing amongst all the, the children that are playing. And it's amazing because I don't know anybody that really ever is taught to say it, but everybody does. It doesn't matter where you are in the country, I would imagine, that when it comes time to play hide-and-seek, everyone knows when you finish counting, you say, ready or not, here I come. Right? Everybody knows that. That's what you say. Ready or not, here I come. I mean, it's what 
I said when I was a kid, it's what my children say. Everybody says that, right? And I love because, you know, you get to see in those kind of little moments, now not certainly nowhere near as adorably, (laughs) the passage that we're dealing with here is that kind of moment inside time and space, now really at the end, where Jesus has announced, ready or not, here I come. And we get to watch the people who have planned well have a good hiding place. And those that are like, oh no, I'm out of time. That's perhaps maybe a modern retelling of this parable. This one certainly has more details. But Jesus is continuing his sermon to his disciples, the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapters 24 and 25 where he's taken up the theme of really the end times. They've asked him the question. Now, they've asked him a bunch of questions, and he's kind of mixing his answers of, you know, when is kind of the end of Jerusalem going to be? When is your ministry coming to an end? When is the end of time? When is your kingdom going to arrive in full? Like kind of all of these end sort of questions. Jesus has answered a number of them, at least kind of when uh, the temple's going to be destroyed, a little bit about when his uh, second coming will be. But the reoccurring theme of the entire sermon, if you were going to kind of boil it down, is you have to be ready. You have to be ready for when Jesus comes back. You have to be ready. If you die, you have to be ready. Which is a profound truth for the Lord to be saying, as he knows the men that he's talking to at this point, just the 12 disciples. He's going to be murdered in just a few short days, and then the persecution will start for them. So much so that the vast majority of them will perish horrible, horrible ways. You have to be ready. Now, that's going to be the theme that we see here in the parable of the ten virgins, the the ten bridesmaids. And again, as I, I guess as we get to this, I do need to make a, just an introductory note about how to read a parable. This is going to be really important because next week some of y'all are going to be accidental heretics if you don't know how to read a parable correctly. A parable is not an allegory, so pardon literature class for just two, two minutes. An allegory is a story where everything symbolizes something. So each person symbolizes another person. Each action symbolizes another action. Each, you know, thing symbolizes another thing. Everything is kind of representative. Again, think Pilgrim's Progress. Everything is a symbol for something else. But they're symbols of the real things behind them. In a parable, everything is a symbol of the lesson not of a one-to-one for a specific person. Meaning, uh, you're going to find some of the parables where the master, it's it's not actually a one-to-one symbol of God. This one here, it's all kind of, uh, the details only matter in so much as it pushes the lesson that we're going to see. All right, so a bunch of points. We're going to work through them uh, fairly quickly, but hopefully... um, with good, good speed and thoroughness. Verses 1 and 2. 
Point number one, all of God's people, all of His humans, all of His creatures, all uh, people everywhere are commanded to be ready for the end. And whether they like it or not, whether they're ready or not, is immaterial to the command. All are commanded to be ready. That's what verses 1 and 2 kind of are framing out for us. 1 and 2 function as kind of the, the preamble. They're the summary statement at the beginning. They're not advancing the narrative as much as they are introducing us to it. The kingdom of heaven, God's rule and reign, this end of time specifically that Jesus is addressing in these things, in this sermon, are going to be just like ten bridesmaids who have their lamps or torches and are ready to meet the groom. And introductorily, five of them are foolish, five of them are wise, but everyone has to be ready. Category-wise, this is advanced in the point really of taking all humanity, all people, whether we like Christianity or not, whether we believe in Jesus or not, whether we are good people or not, all humans are kind of brought into this story in the form of the ten bridesmaids. Whether you like it or not, again, that's not really up for you to decide. You may say, well, I don't want to be in this story. Well, tough. That doesn't really really matter. You don't really get a say in that. Lord's placed you there whether you want it or not. All humans are commanded to be ready for the end. Now, again, I know that some of us kind of, candidly, some of us are afraid of change. So the idea of something kind of cataclysmic happening and major change in the the created order that we know passing away just scares us in general because some of us just don't like change. Some of us are, are people that like control. We're the type of person that we never ride in the car. We always have to drive because we don't trust another person with our life. Right? Some of us, we don't, we don't like riding the roller coasters on the traveling fairs when they come around because you're like, I don't know if the guy was actually faithful when he screwed that bolt tight or if I'm going to go flying off into space and then get turned into human jelly when I land. I'm not okay with that. Whether we like it or not doesn't actually impact the reality at all. Time, space, matter, and energy, as we know it, will come to an end. And if that were kind of concerning, perhaps, I love how Jesus is so clear in acknowledging that when time and space and matter and energy as we know them come to an end, when this created order disappears the way that we know it, when it's unmade, all humans are kind of really introduced to that change in His presence. 
That's actually kind of the bigger overarching theme is that it's not just kind of you for, to be ready for death or to be ready for the created order to disappear. It's that you have to be ready to meet the one who made it. I mean, it's said that in our nation for years, I guess. You ha- are you ready to meet your maker? Yeah. Whether you, you're ready or not, there is a day or we have to. And the great reality is that to be in the presence of our Maker is the most blessed, the most joyful, and the most delightful place that a human can be when we are not the objects of His wrath. When, we're not, when God's not angry at us, the, being in His presence is the singular best place to be. I do find it's interesting that, again, the pattern that Jesus uses to describe his arrival is a party. It's a wedding. All humanity is introduced into the story in the function of the bridesmaids, but it's the description of a party. It's a wedding. And not to say that we don't do weddings well here. We certainly don't do them as well as they did back then. Right? If you've done any bit of reading on this, you know their weddings were at least a week long sometimes maybe two, and then the honeymoon lasted effectively for a year. That is not a bad arrangement, right? I mean, you couldn't do military service. Husband really wasn't even allowed to leave the home for a year. It was, he worked on the farm or whatever else, but he was there. It was functionally a year-long honeymoon. What a great idea, And it's intriguing that already the Lord is saying, look, you you have to be ready for the end, but the reality is that if you're ready for it, it is perfect joy because you get to be in His presence forever. In fact, we could even go so far as to say all other joys, all the joys that we know, even the joy of watching children play hide-and-go-seek poorly is derivative. It's drawn from, in a lesser fashion, that ultimate joy of being in God's presence. Everybody's commanded to be ready. It's introduced at the beginning. Well, there's a a problem in the story. All good stories have a problem of some kind. In this one, it's that the bridegroom, the groom, takes a while to get there. Now, we know how, again, marriages worked in this situation. You, you had the period of betrothal. We are familiar with that. That's where uh, Joseph and Mary and Jesus are in kind of chronologically in their marriage relationship. You have the period of betrothal where you were uh, close together but not fully married and not physically intimate. But the way the wedding was kind of fully brought to a consummation is the groom traveled to the bride's house. And you either got married there and partied there for the next, you know, week or so, or more commonly, they would, the groom would show up and get his bride and then take her back to his house. But this is the description taking place is of a wedding ceremony. But perhaps, maybe we don't know, something's gone wrong for the groom of the story. Now, again, remember, it's, it's not a one-to-one with Jesus. Maybe it's gone wrong. Maybe he's had to travel and his, you know, he rolled his ankle. He turned his ankle at some point, so he's not walking as quickly as he wanted to. Maybe he ran into trouble. Maybe one of the camels got thirsty and they couldn't find water. There's a, a, a million different things it could be. But in this situation, the problem is that the groom is taking too long. In 
In fact, actually, he's taking so long. You can, you can get the, I mean, I love how just contemporary this feels. The bridesmaids are all there. They're all excited. You can imagine the kind of twittering. and just, Everybody's excited. And eventually, the young ladies kind of talk themselves out. You've seen that happen in a room full of people before, right? Where the young ladies are all excited and the energy builds and the energy builds and the energy builds and then it's not sustainable and they just kind of crash out. One of them kind of nods off in a chair. Another nods off on a bench. Maybe two of them fall asleep on each other's shoulder and and all of the bridesmaids just kind of eventually knock out. Too tired. Now, interestingly, in this story, Jesus doesn't condemn them for this. It's not a condemnation that they have to rest. It's not a condemnation that they are sleeping. Because there is the implication that, you know what, it is part of the design of Christ's return that it is designed to take a while. This is why we read Thessalonians. It's one of the struggles they're having. Some of them were like, hey, Jesus is coming back tomorrow. I'm quitting my job. Right? Suppose you do the same thing. You win the lottery, what's the thing you're doing first thing tomorrow morning? Right? Get the old country song, take this job, shove it, I'm done. Right? I'm not interested in working anymore, I'm out. The Thessalonian church had run into that where they said, hey, you know what, Jesus come back tomorrow, I'm out. I'm not going back to work tomorrow. There is no way you can send me back to that place. Whoa, time out, friend. <laughs> it might be tomorrow, but we're not guaranteed that it's tomorrow. In fact, actually, it's been 2,000 years, and that's not actually a surprise in any way, because Jesus told us that it would take a while. In fact, actually, it shouldn't bother the church if we're still the early church, and it has another 125,000 years before he comes back. It might be possible. The planet certainly can sustain it. We've built a very clever planet. We're fine. But it's part of the design that it it could be any moment, 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 but it could also be a thousand years from now moment. But shouldn't surprise us. I find this comforting as in other parts of the scriptures the Lord speaks of his plan uh, as it taking place in the fullness of time. I love this, you know, really... You may know this about me. I love strategy. I love strategy games. I I love thinking and kind of planning and thinking through how things are going to work out and how people are going to behave and things like that. And so much of for us as humans and playing board games and things like that, strategy games, is it's an attempt to kind of prognosticate and guess at how other humans are going to behave and then outsmart them. The Lord never, he's not lacking for any information. There's no need to outsmart anyone. He's already smarter than everyone. He already has infinite information. So his plan is being executed in the perfect time. You don't have to worry. Yes, it's taken a while to return. It's taken a while to arrive at the fullness of time. All right, so back to our story, we run into, we've got all humans in one category, the wise or the foolish. Here we have the bridesmaids waiting for the groom to arrive, but uh, they've kind of gotten dreary and gotten tired and they've fallen asleep. 
Verse 6, at midnight, there comes a cry. Now, uh, for some of us here, we think midnight, that's not that late. Right? I'm up at midnight every night. And that is only because we live in a world that is powered by electricity. And if you live in a world that's not powered by electricity, midnight is very late because it's been dark for quite a while. And you would have most likely been asleep for quite some time. Something happens, perhaps uh, as the groom is traveling, he knows he's getting close and he's sent a messenger ahead. We don't know. Perhaps the town watchman in small town, everybody would know everybody's business. Perhaps the town watchman sees the party uh, out on the horizon and it's a group of, you know, men traveling with torches and such. Either way, somebody sees the groom a long way off and begins the cry to wake up the town and to wake up the party. The groom's here. He's coming. Now, that doesn't mean he's like right outside those doors. Again, they see him a ways off. And it's interesting that now we get to see really kind of the heart of the issue is that the entirety of the existence of these bridesmaids in relationship to the story is entirely determined by how ready they are for this moment. Whether they are considered wise or foolish, whether they are considered successful or a failure, ultimately whether or not they get to enjoy the party or if they're objects of his judgment is determined by how ready they are. So somebody yells, verse 6, hey, he's coming, he's here, he's here, he's here. So verse 7, all the bridesmaids arise and they begin to trim their lamps is what the ESV says. I'm going to be completely honest, the word for lamp, it could also be torch and both of these make sense. Uh, The way that you would maintain a torch in that era would be, you know, kind of cloths uh, wrapped around uh, a stick. You would have soaked it in oil um, so that it absorbed as much as you could, but then you would have kind of kept it out of the oil because you don't want it dripping. I mean, the idea of burning dripping oil on your arm, probably not a good idea. So at the last possible second, what you would do is you'd reapply a little bit of olive oil, light it up, and you'd be ready to go. And the same thing with the lamps is if the oil is somehow kind of, you know, kind of burnt out or evaporated out or something of the sort like that, uh, and the wicks had gone dry. Either way, the idea is they've been kind of waiting for this moment but it still requires preparation, right? All the bridesmaids have been waiting for the groom to get there, but they had to be ready, right? Your torch, you've had to soak it, but at the last possible second, you'd have to still put more oil on top of it to make sure that it's ready to burn. You can't just soak it, you know, in a bucket forever. You have to be ready. And friends, it's it's interesting because if we really wanted to kind of put this point in a succinct way, we would say the success of your life is determined by your preparedness for Christ. And this goes kind of completely in the face of the American ethos because if you want to go around and ask kind of Americans, what does it mean to have a successful life? We'll say, well, I made a lot of money. Or I was able to avoid a lot of pain. 
or I was able to get enough money that I could, you know, kind of live as long as possible, or I had a life that was filled with adventure or interesting things, or I have friends that love me, or I have family that care for me, or I'm an important person, or, you know, I I had influence over others, I'm famous, I'm uh, any of these kind of various things that our culture holds up as a, a definition of success. I've lived the good life. But it's interesting that when Jesus goes to address what is the successful life, what, is, what does it mean? It means that you're ready for him to come back. This goes back to that title, right? There's two different types of bridesmaids. There are the fools and there are the wise. And there's only those two categories. Now, if you're going to preach this passage faithfully, I don't really think you can preach it without asking the congregation the question, at least at one time in the sermon, are you ready? If he came back right now, are you ready? First and foremost, I would say, do you know him? That's one way you have to be ready is you have to know who Jesus is. And by that, I don't mean intellectually. I mean, you've made it into the church. We've already sung his hymns. We've read his Bible. We've already talked about it. You, You intellectually have at least an understanding of who Jesus is. I don't mean that. I mean it in the sense of You love him because he loved you first. That you trust him because he died for you. That you hope in him because he is the only one who forgives sins. That you delight in him because he is the goodness of God incarnate. That you marvel at him because he is the living and true God That he is your way, the truth, and the life. Do you know him? I'd love, in theory I would love this, in reality it would actually break my mind, but I'd love to be able to know for sure that everybody in here knows Jesus. But in a room this size, again, play the odds. There's some of us that aren't. And again, having lived in the South my entire life, I acknowledge that there is probably one of those great categories of those that have been around Christianity enough that you know roughly what I'm talking about, but it's never made sense to you. You know what it means to be around the church and to be around Jesus, but to to actually love him and to know him, what that even means doesn't make sense to you. Friends, if that is you, come and talk to me afterwards. I would indeed worry about your eternal condition. And the good news is that Jesus offers forgiveness for free to you, not to him. Do you know him? Are you ready 
for him. Well, the, the next point kind of drawn from this is very closely connected. The groom shows up. The bridesmaids begin to light their torches. I suspect that's probably a better explanation than lamps, but they both work. Some of the young ladies begin to panic because they realize, oh no, I'm, I'm not quite ready for this. Give us some, give us some of your oil, right? I, I forgot to pack an extra you know, oil jar. I'm, I'm out. Give, give us some oil. Either maybe their lamps have burnt down too far or they forgot to bring enough to kind of douse the, the torch again right before they light it. You know, share some of yours. And friends, this is extremely important to understand. Verses 8 and 9 teach us. Preparedness for Christ is non-transferable, meaning I can't be prepared for you. You have to be prepared for you. You see, the young ladies, they panic and they say, hey, I need oil, I need oil, I need oil, and they turn to their friends and say, share some of yours with me, and you know what, you can't, because that extra oil that they would have needed would have been uh, there to keep their torch or their lamp lit for the entire night. If the five who have oil share with the five who don't, halfway through the wedding, all the lights are going out, which is usually not preferable. They can't share. It's all needed. It's theirs. It belongs to them. It's there for a purpose. And interestingly, what do they tell them is, look, hey, I know it's midnight, but it's a small town. The whole town's probably going to be waking up for the wedding here in just a minute. Go find somebody who's going to sell you some because you've got to have your own supply. You've got to deal with it yourself. You have to have your own. Preparedness is not shareable. It's not transferable. We can't do it for each other. Uh, I would say it this way for us thinking here is that salvation is not by proximity. It doesn't mean that you walk through those doors and you come into this building and kind of instantly you become a Christian. I, I wish that were the case. We would have built a much larger building. Salvation isn't one of those things that we can, we, we can kind of just Make our children be that. And children, I would speak to you as I often do in this regard. Do not assume simply because you have grown up in this church or grown up with parents that tell you about Christ or do not simply assume that because you have a pastor that preaches Christ that you instantly know him. See, that's the mistake these young ladies make is they assume they're ready. They just never thought about it. They didn't, they didn't take a pause. They didn't think, oh, hey, by the way, I've got a lamp. I probably need oil for it. There's just a massive assumption that they're ready. And I would say, friends, do not make that mistake. Children, particularly, do not make that mistake to think that just because you're in the proximity of Christ, in the location of the church, you're in the actual physical building of Christ, that you know him. I mean, it would be just as silly as showing up for a test in school and assuming you're going to do well because the kid that sits next to you studied hard. I mean, it's great that Johnny studied hard, but that's not going to improve my score. 
Every person has to take their own test. Every person has to be ready for their end of their life. Every person has to meet with Jesus. And the last part of this is hard because there are no second chances, at least not upon death. This is where it kind of hurts our feelings and it gets a bit uncomfortable. The, uh, the five uh, bridesmaids who are ready, they, the, the groom gets there, they usher him in to the party. Weird wedding, right? Starts at roughly 12.30 at night, but hey, whatever. Y'all are going to have a party and it's a good one, I'm sure. The five who aren't ready, they go out, they buy oil, they come back, and when they get there, they're like, yeah, all right, it's party time. Verse 11 All right, let us in. Verse 12, no. Now here Jesus expands the parable and in fact actually goes further into the the language of sheep and goats, Christians and non-Christians to say that by that point it is too late, friends. Because what ends up he's saying is, I didn't know you, you weren't one of mine. It's that terrible but great reality that you have to be ready for death before you die, not after. You have to be ready for the second coming before it happens, not after. That's why the passage is about being prepared, being made ready. So I ask the simple question just briefly, how do we be prepared? Well, first, I already talked about this. You have to know Jesus. And again, if you find yourself in a situation where you don't even know what that means or you know that you don't know him, talk to me, please. Talk to the elders. We love to have that conversation. Some of us in here, though, are going, well, I've known Jesus for maybe a long time. He's known me for even longer. I know I'm a Christian. I have that assurance of salvation, but I still want to be ready. What does it mean for me to be ready? And I would say first is to, to look for his appearing meaning to to pay attention for when he comes back. You know, honestly, some of us are so preoccupied with this life that we never think about the second coming until we get violently sick. Get one good case of food poisoning, and you're like, sweet Jesus, come back now, I'm ready. And then you get better, and you're like, oh, I don't think about that again until the next time I get food poisoning next decade. You know, and then we start to age, and as we get older, we get sicker, and then we start to think about it. But friends, it's like, what a, what a kind of a sad indictment of our Christianity that we only long for Jesus to come back when we get sick. As if Jesus is only better than illness. <laughs> Not better than everything else. And this is, I will acknowledge, one of the great challenges for us is that uh, our lives are so good and we're so rich. I mean, I'm not saying money's not tight, you spend it all, I get it. But because our lives are so good, we, we don't spend all of our life longing for the ultimate fulfillment of Jesus. And so maybe, maybe, It might be good for us to do that. I remember reading a biography a number of years ago about one of the, um, well, a theologian from the previous century, and he was in the middle of a a really terrible situation, terrible circumstance. And so he made the the commitment 
that for like a year, he would spend an hour a day just thinking about the second coming. That was it. He would just sit and think for an hour a day about the second coming. And you think, man, what a waste of time, right? I mean, how many days can you do that before you run out of things to think about? And interestingly, when he got to the end of his kind of time, he realized that the Lord had used it to transform him so much that it was a habit he tried to keep through the rest of his life until he died because he knew it changed him and it transformed him to have his entire life be altered around and shaped around that day, not this one. Secondly, I would say for many of us, it needs, we need to have a little bit of an honest conversation about ourselves, about how much we love the things that are going to remain that day. You know, honestly, a lot of us, if you ask us what the delights of our heart are, all of the delights are parts of the created order that's going to end, and not the delights in the things that will last. I mean, let's be candid about ourselves, right, and be, be honest about who we are and what we are. I mean, you look at our culture and so much of the money that's spent in our culture, look at what are some of the largest industries, right? They're all things that are preoccupied with the flesh that pass away and don't carry on into the life to come. And then lastly, living in light of it, kind of in how we behave. I mentioned this last week, but you know, one of my teachers that taught me so dearly, really, really and truly, work hard not to sin, so that you're not doing that when Jesus comes back. Believe it or not, I know that sounds a little bit silly in some cases, you'd be amazed at how much easier it is not to sin when it's like, Jesus could come back right in the middle of this. This is what I'm doing. This is how I go out, right? This is the end note of my life, being a fool this way. I'll pass on that. Because the reality is the Lord Jesus is spectacularly merciful, He's spectacularly kind. And in fact, actually doesn't give second chances. He gives third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth, millions of chances in this life until it ends. And I think, if nothing else, the last couple of years have shown us is that our culture doesn't know what to do with the idea of death. And certainly doesn't know what it means to live in a way to be ready to die. And friends, that's exactly what Jesus is challenging us to. To live our lives, not because he'll love us more. To live our lives in a prepared fashion, not because it makes us a better Christian. Not because somehow it makes us more justified, because it doesn't. But because Jesus has loved us first, because God has loved us first with a perfect love for us to live our lives eager for his return. We're going to get to that into the table in just a moment. A meal designed to remind us of that great day. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Forgive us for our sin. Would you make us ready? We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.